Hello, nerds. This is Ali, cutting in from the present, from the future, interrupting past Ali, whatever, just to say hello and welcome you all to finally the continuation of our season on the history of sexuality and gender and sex in the Islamic world. Um, this has been a long time coming. The season was sort of interrupted as a result of life events and moving cross-country and academic job market and all sorts of things. Uh, but we have finished. The season has been done for a while. We just haven't been able to upload it and edit it, but it is finally complete. In the meantime, we have sort of reorganized head on history. It is now going from a a seasonal podcast, 10 episodes per season, to a monthly podcast that will be ongoing throughout the year. Um, in the past, I've organized sort of head-on history around the classes that I teach. Uh, so history of Islam or sort of the basic Islam 101, intellectual history, even my empires of faith class were all sort of presented in podcast form, even the gender and sexuality uh, season is really based off of the class that I teach, basically taking each one of my lectures and making them sort of digestible. I'm actually going to be moving a little bit away from that. I will continue to, uh, you know, present my classes in digestible form via podcast, but we're also going to be diving in more clearly into my own research interests. So the intellectual history of Islam the history of science, the history of occult philosophy, the history of esotericism, cosmology, apocalypticism. I'll be covering more and more of that. And rather than have a sort of singular theme, I will move around in episodes. So there won't always be a cohesive theme linking each one of the episodes because we won't be having one, you know, cohesive season, but rather an ongoing discussion. And so you'll see a, a great deal more variety in the topics that we will discuss, as well as a deep dive into my own research interests. I've also reorganized the podcast so that there is a Patreon now available, um, patreon.com slash headonhistory. If you want to go and sign up and subscribe there, you will have early access to episodes by a couple months, as or by a whole month, as well as bonus features like uh, my unique translations, various video demos, etc. However, that said, all podcasts will still be made available free. So there may be early release for podcast Patreons, the hope to creating a little bit of self-sufficiency for the podcast. But on the whole, you'll still have access to it. So if you don't want to subscribe, don't worry. You'll still have access via whatever podcast app that you have. So a few changes in the many, many months it's been since we sort of started the season and then ghosted and disappeared. We will release this entire a season uh, over the course of the next couple days and they'll be made readily available and free on all podcast apps and then going forward well, the new episodes will be released on Head on History where we already have a few episodes up and then released month by month available to the wider public. With that I hope that you will continue your journey with me as we explore Islamic history, Islamic thought, esotericism, occultism, apocalypticism, you know, eschatology, all of it. We will discover and explore together. I will now turn this back over to Ali in the past, who will continue the long-awaited season on gender.
and welcome to another episode of Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. Today we are going to further develop our theme of gender and sexuality that we started last week by discussing the role of sex and pleasure in Islamic culture. We are going to have further episodes on gender relationships, sexuality and gender identity, and much more, but we really want to set up the idea of pleasure, or the, what is the concept of sex in classical Islamic thought. Last week, I mentioned that much of Islamic thought views sex in mostly positive terms. This is embedded in the Quran itself, which encourages marriage for the believers. Marriage, therefore, is not just for procreation, but a valve to actually direct sexual urges. There is a strong value in privacy and modesty in the Qur'an and in the prophetic tradition that follows, while also framing sex as entirely natural and therefore a gift from God. Marriage is what acts as a sort of bridge between these seemingly contradictory values. Sex is good, but in the Islamic imagination, it is bound in the contract between two people. Now, we'll actually talk more about marriage in a different episode, but I wanted to set that up front to make clear that what we're talking about, when we're talking about sex and pleasure, it is done so still within certain socially, religiously justified boundaries. So sex is viewed as a good thing, but fundamentally a private thing. Privacy is a very important value in Islamic, uh, the Islamic kind of culture. This is also super important for understanding Sharia, that is the uh, sort of scary boogeyman word that we often find from Islamophobes. Islamic law, it actually means Islamic guidance. Sharia is really kind of hesitant to deal with people's private matters. That's between you and God. What happens in your household is between you and God. And so it tries not to regulate privacy at all, but rather sort of social contracts between people. So sex in your own home and your privacy of your of your family, that's a good thing. It's a encouraged, it's a positive thing. But the public is viewed as a collective space that must consent. It's a shared space. The public must consent to sharing that space together. And so when we when you often hear language about a licentiousness or, or lewdness, they're generally talking about acts that are done that violate privacy, that go outside the bounds of privacy, that therefore violate other people's consent, other people's exposure to it. When it comes to the privacy of your own home, the opposite is true. You should be having sex, and as much of it as possible, as kinky as you would like it to be, totally fine is considered a good thing. So there's this sort of tension here between sex as a positive thing, but also sex as a private act that we often see repeatedly through the literature. So I do want to set that up first and foremost. Now, what about sex as pleasure? We find this really clearly in the early scriptures. Like, for example, we have a hadith that drives this point home. Uh, For example, when one of you have sex with your wife, it is a reward as an act of charity. This is from Muslim number uh, 1674. Why is it an act of charity? In other words, it's considered a good deed. That acts of good deeds, that is, giving charity to the poor, helping out the widow, the orphan, these are all considered good acts in Islam, right? The freeing of slaves, the uh, giving to the poor, the feeding of the hungry, the fighting for the... These are all considered good acts. Along these good acts is sex. 
that's very unique here, right? You don't quite, you can't quite imagine that as as a sort of medieval Christian value. Feed the hungry, but also make sure that you're having good sex at home. Isn't you know theologians aren't really writing about that, but it is very much in the Islamic tradition that as much as you're supposed to be doing good out there, you should be doing good at home, and that good is having good sex. It's a good thing for all for everyone to be in a mutually beneficial relationship of having affection for one another and having good sex. So what is this kind of concept of good sex? That's something that we will be talking about throughout this episode. From very kind of early on, we have evidence that the Islamic view of sex is centered on pleasure. Imam al-Daylami, he records a narration on the authority of Anas ibn Malik that the messenger of Allah, that is Muhammad, is reported to have said, not one of you should fulfill your sexual need or fall upon your wife like an animal, but let there first be a messenger between you. And what is that messenger, they asked, and he replied, kisses and words. In other words, be attentive lovers, not just about self-satisfaction, but mutual pleasure. So here we have the kind of core scriptural corpus of Islam, the hadith. This is the sort of secondary source after the Quran, the words and sayings of Muhammad. And he is instructing his followers on how to be good Muslims. And those instructions involve things like how to pray properly, how to do charitable and good works, but also how to have mutually pleasurable sex. That's an important lesson that he is telling people. I mean, he this is, you know, this is in many ways the, the sort of gospel according to Muhammad. The Quran is believed to be the words of God, but the hadiths are the words of Muhammad. And here Muhammad is teaching his followers that they should be having attentive sex, that they should be affectionate and loving, and mutual pleasure is a key component of this. This is interesting because it means, firstly, that sex is not merely about procreation, though procreation is important, but that sex is also about pleasure. And that pleasure is not just about men getting off, but their partners getting off as well. Early Muslim thinkers were concerned with pleasure, and that concern manifests in a variety of different sort of religious explanations. Now, there are certain debates found about the restrictions about certain sects' acts, but on the whole, pleasure is seen as a boon from God, not a temptation, and certainly not a sin. Sex is not a bad thing that people are sort of have to do out of necessity. It's actually a good thing. It's a gift from God. I think it's crucial to understand the historical process here that codifies some of these values. The Quran itself is a 7th century text, or or likely roughly around the 7th century. Dating is a little bit iffy, we're not quite sure. But in it, we find the basic values of Islam. The role of pleasure and marriage being found within it. So right from the very earliest sources of Islam, sex and pleasure are found as good things, treated as positive things in the Quran. Now, That said, it is in the centuries later that those Quranic principles are explicated through the Hadith, that is the sayings of Muhammad, through certain chain of transmission that are then systematized through interpretation. In many ways, these later attempts at explaining the concepts found in the Quran codify the historic cultural values of the people who are doing the interpreting. 
So you have layers here. You have the oral, the kind of oldest layer, which is the Quran. Then you have the Hadith layer, which is a layer on top of it. And then you have the systematizing or the interpretation that is a layer on top. And each one of these layers codifies or represents or crystallizes the values of that particular era. So roughly around the 7th century of the Quran, the Hadiths come in a little bit later, and then the interpretations much later from there. Why is this important? Because we do certainly find some element of, of an emphasis on men's pleasure in the later interpretations. There is a support, supposedly a saying that says wives should not refuse the call to bed, right? But these are later interpretations versus the original Quranic ethos. And so there is some complexity here. I don't want to paint an entirely rosy picture. I do want to note that despite the fact that there is a very positive view of sex, and that women's pleasure is very important, that there is a sort of patriarchal framework that develops much later on. And that patriarchal framework, one that it likely really reflects the transformation of Islam from the small religious community in the 7th century to a vast, sprawling empire and accompanying diverse civilization in the centuries that followed, we also have a conversation about the rights of women to pleasure. So, you have this initial ethos that talks about mutual pleasure and the positivity of sex. Some later patriarchal anxieties which try to emphasize male pleasure, and so there is a sort of patriarchal framework that exists. Yet even despite that patriarchal framework, there is a large and broad conversation about the right of women to pleasure. That it is not simply a male-centric experience. That it's not just about men's sexually getting off, but women must as well. For example, in the 12th century, Al-Ghazali, who's one of the chief philosophers of the medieval Islamic world, writes that it is imperative on husbands to ensure women achieve pleasure during intercourse. He is explicit that the orgasm is a right of both men and women, and indeed the key to avoid marital estrangement. He goes on to warn that men should not be preoccupied with their own pleasure, that they ignore their wives. Basically, Al-Ghazali is saying that good sex is one of the keys to a happy marriage. So we're seeing very early on that even early on in the Quran, that pleasure is a good thing. Early on in the Hadith, that mutual pleasure is a good thing. Then we start to see a little bit of a sort of patriarchal society that starts to develop within the medieval period, what uh, Layla Ahmad calls the sort of uh, development of Islamic societies that come after. Yet even in the, that moment, you have these philosophers that are saying, look, we've got to stay true to that Quranic impulse, that Quranic ethos that says that pleasure is mutual here. Now, Keshia Ali, in her book Sexual Ethics and Islam, cites Sadia Sheikh, who states women are entitled to full sexual pleasure. So this is a very clear part of the Islamic ethos on sex, that pleasure is not meant to be restricted to men and men alone. These religious and jurisprudential rulings about sexual pleasure are actually one small part of a much broader intellectual and cultural tradition. In addition to these sort of theologians and philosophers talking about the religious responsibilities in sex, we also find sex manuals and encyclopedias written roughly contemporaneous to these jurisprudential writings, these, these, these writings by jurists. For example, the 10th century Jawami al-Ladhat, or the Encyclopedia of, of Pleasure, 
think about it, the encyclopedia of pleasure. You just know there's going to be some juicy tidbits in this, right? This is what people are writing. It's written by a guy named Ali ibn Nasr al-Khatib, who records all manner of erotic pleasure, including, I should say, female and male same-sex relations. Now, we're going to put a little bit of an asterisk here and revisit this in a podcast all its own, its own episodes. So we will discuss this further, but it is important to note that sexual diversity exists in the Jawami al-Adhan, right? This, this encyclopedia of, of, of pleasure, it's there. At the heart of the encyclopedia is the concept of ishq, which refers to passionate love. So there's a variety of different words for love in Arabic, and they all express subtle nuances. Ishq is passionate love, love that is sensual and physical. Now, interestingly, the book is a compendium of the erotic, but it also is deeply medical. It views sex and pleasure literally as a health benefit. Ali was a physician himself. He actually writes, Sex gives fire to the soul, joy to the heart, renewal of intimacy, and increase of the body, consolation of the eyes, sharpness of the mind, brightness of the intellect, assurance and permanence of the pledge, solidity of love, continuance of affection, and the recovering of disunion. In taking a woman there is happiness for the hearts, pleasure for the souls, treatment for the chest, the calming of passion, and the heat of the man. In other words, there is a medical benefit to having sex and lots of it. Not just some sex, but frequently having sex. Now, there are several important elements to this passage. We're going to break this down. First, the view of sex as a benefit for health, right? It's good for the body. It's good for the mind. It improves the mind and body, in other words, is what he says. Second, sex is a benefit for the relationship. Sex produces love and affection. This is really important. Sex is not separate, is not just an animal act. It is an emotional act. It involves the body, but it also involves the heart. And this is a crucial component to their understanding of sex. That yes, sex is a positive thing, but they're defining sex in terms of love here. And finally, the centering of your partner's pleasure. It is healthy and good for your partner to achieve pleasure during sex. It's not just about you getting off. In other words, selfish sex or masturbatory sex is not good for you. What's good for you is sex that is mutual, that is you both get off on it. Because it's not just about the physical act of getting off, of the physical orgasm, but also the intimacy that is formed when you both get off, when you both have an orgasm, when you both find pleasure. This is why that mutual pleasure is such an important component here. The Encyclopedia of Pleasure doesn't just discuss the medical, social, and emotional benefits of pleasure but it discusses in detail the physical or manual ways of pleasure. There is a catalog of sexual acts and forms of pleasure. This likely would have been inspired by the Kama Sutra to some extent. They are engaging with the Indic world. So there is some, uh, there's all sort of discussion about positions that are good for, for each other, for achieving pleasure and mutual uh, satisfaction. 
The treatise is fascinating. Now, though centering women's pleasure, it does seem to be written for a male reader. Likely, it would have been part of some sort of elite discourse, a work of philosophy, eroticism, and medicine, part of the high Abbasid culture of the 9th to the 11th centuries. It seems to hint at a sort of elite male ethos, that period, uh, you know, that, that prided itself on lovemaking as a skill. We see sort of repeated references to pleasure distinguished from base, animalistic, low-brow sex that doesn't take women's pleasure into consideration. And given the prevalence of erotic poetry at this same time period, this could be part of a courtly culture of wooing, seduction, and skill in the bedroom. There seems to be some intertextuality between erotic literature like the Encyclopedia of Pleasure with books on on manners like Isla al-Akhlaq, a book of courtly refinement and manners. The connection between erotic literature and adhab uh, adab, adab means uh, manners or or decorum or uh, behavior. It's sort of a, a genteel literature about um, how to behave in a courtly manner, adab literature. These all seem to be related to one another. The expectation, therefore, is that one who was an educated gentleman would be a poet, a scholar, and good in bed, right? Refinement meant being attentive to the needs and pleasure of your partner. It was encompassed in being well-mannered. Now, the question of the historical roots of these texts is interesting. The Encyclopedia of Pleasure is written during an era of translation in which Hellenistic texts on medicine and philosophy were being translated into Arabic. In fact, we have a quote, and Socrates is related to have said that sexual intercourse without cordiality is crude. And so you have this sort of connection even with the Greek world, a fusion of Islamic ethos, a little bit with uh, Greek philosophy here. From the 9th century on, Hellenistic works make a major impact in the Abbasid world, from Baghdad to Cairo to Bukhara. We are seeing the construction of a sort of cosmopolitan culture that fuses the diversity of thought, cultures, and practices into an Islamic ethos on sex and pleasure. Though the book is directed towards men, orgasm and pleasure is seen as mutually beneficial. Women aren't merely objects of men's desire, but referred to as the beloved, and pleasure for both is the key to happiness and maintaining affection. The encyclopedia makes this explicit by repeatedly referencing mutual simultaneous orgasm. Success in this matter is viewed as a part or a result of education, knowledge, and refinement. So the text is dedicated to educating on women's anatomy, needs, and pleasure. It seems that the sort of long-running joke of men not being able to find the clitoris was resolved by medieval Muslim writers. They're like, here's a manual. Figure it out, dude. Heck, there's even some advice on having pillow talk after sex, how to cuddle and talk. This is a sort of stark difference from the medieval Christian world, where sex was viewed as mostly through the lens of chastity. Sex was an animalistic act necessary for procreation, but if a woman enjoyed it too much, then there was a corrupting influence there. Not so in the Islamic world. Sex was great, and everyone should be enjoying it. Sex was a gift from God. So what is the root of all these books? What is the sort of origin of it? 
likely what we're seeing here is a complex historical process in which the Quranic ideals, which were written in the 7th century and vaunt pleasure, are then further expanded through religious jurisprudence that explain religiously what pleasure means through an int- and as well as an interaction, adoption of Hellenistic texts. So you have a sort of fusion of forces, an older Quranic ethos, a later religious explanation for it, and then the adoption of Hellenistic medical and philosophical views. The result is the elevating of pleasure for both men and women as essential values of the medieval Islamic world. A mixture of the Qur'an, a bit of religious law, and a healthy dose of Greek philosophy and medicine. Explanations of the Qur'an intersect with the intellectual project of translating the Greeks and articulating it for an Islamic society. The dialogic process here creates in fashions a culture that praises pleasure as the goal in of itself and encourages mutual pleasure as healthy and emotionally reaffirming. That said, the manual is still written for men, and while it centers the pleasure of women, there are pl- there's plenty of anxiety among the religious scholars about women fulfilling their duties to men. There are definitely, we don't want to paint a rosy, you know, rose-colored image here or, or, or really kind of romanticize the past. There's certainly men that have very clear patriarchal uh, frameworks in their understanding of pleasure, particularly religious scholars. Much of this discourse uh, really is kind of minor, though. It only exists on the periphery. It's not the main thrust of the thought. But then it gets picked up by modern conservative scholars who eschew the far more diverse and nuanced discourse on mutual pleasure. For example, once more, Keshi Ali notes how the conservative Saudi scholar Ibn Jibreen in the 20th and 21st century takes a question about mutual pleasure between husband and wife and emphasizes that the husband has stronger needs and therefore the wife has some form of obligation. That is to say that the broad, complicated, and diverse discourse in the pre-modern and medieval Islam is narrowed. That the social, political, and historical context of the scholars that are doing the interpreting show their anxieties, and those anxieties about sex can reduce the far more diverse and nuanced history that is present when we're talking about sex and pleasure. In other words, the pre-modern, both the classical Islamic period at the time of Muhammad, the medieval period right after the time of Muhammad during the Abbasids and the Fatimids, has a very diverse, nuanced, complicated ideas about sex and pleasure, but that often gets flattened in the modern period as a result of Puritan and colonial anxieties. So a lot of the contemporary discussion about Islamic sexual ethos kind of forgets its older history. That older history gets sort of made subterranean or made invisible in the contemporary discourse. You know, you have Imbalaz and Pakistan and sheikhs in Saudi Arabia who aren't going to be referencing this older history. It may be an inconvenient truth to point out that Muhammad is saying, hey, your partner should be getting off sexually just as much as you are. And it might be an inconvenient truth for them to point out that the great Islamic thinkers of the past all universally agreed that sex should be about mutual pleasure. They might be a little inconvenient for them, so that ends up getting ignored quite deliberately. Hopefully this podcast can point out that that pre-modern history is way more complicated than our modern attempts at, uh, at this discussion, that there's more depth here than we're willing to admit. Finally, I will end by really driving this point home that sensuality, sex, and pleasure are never 
divorced from the spiritual and the Quranic ethos. Heaven is described in entirely sensual terms as a literal garden of pleasure. See the Quran, uh, Surah 31, verse 8. This is Surah Luqman. Sex, therefore, is a glimpse of heaven. It is a good thing. In the Islamic view of heaven, you're not just chilling around in clouds. You're in gardens of pleasure. You're enjoying one another's company sensually. As such, subsequent Islamic society viewed sex not exclusively through the lens of reproduction, but rather sex was for the purpose of pleasure. And pleasure was always couched in terms of intimacy. This is the other component here. Sex is not, just as spirituality is not diverse from the material, that you or could be a spiritual person and also a sexual being. In fact, we have some fascinating biographies of, of religious and spiritual mystics and whatnot who had very robust sex lives. <laughs> they, they, their biographies often talk about their sexual prowess and, the, and, and pleasure and how many partners, you know, they, they had sex this much time and whatnot. This is really important. This is really crucial that they don't see spirituality divorced from the physical, that the, these two are intertwined. But simultaneously, the physical doesn't exist on its own. It is intertwined with the emotional. That's very important to understand that sex is not just an act of carnal desire, but is an act of intimacy here. So have sex have lots of it enjoy it make sure your partner enjoys it but make sure that the sex is meaningful that it fosters intimacy affection and love between you and your partner so medieval islamic scholars would actually probably have a really interesting view of contemporary tinder and grinder culture they would probably point out that hey you guys are hooking up way more than we ever did but you're probably having way less sex than we did it's just a kind of an interesting point, right? These people are likely talking about the fact that sex was a good thing and you should be having it frequently and it builds emotional bonds. But that just sort of having sex for the purpose of sex, that the pleasure without the emotional component is missing something, that it deadens the soul or deadens the psyche. And to a certain extent, uh, psychology may perhaps support the idea that, that sex uh, as, a, as a form of intimacy is immensely psychologically fulfilling, not just physically fulfilling. It's not just an orgasm, but there's an emotional satisfaction that one gets from it. And this certainly is the point of the medieval scholars. So they would be a-okay with the sex-positive you know, improvements. Yay, sex is good. Don't be such a prude about it. But they may be a little bit more hesitant around, say, hookup culture. They would be far more inclined to see sex as an intimate act. Have as much of it. Have it be frequent about it. About it uh, make sure that you're both getting off it. But make sure that the sex is meaningful. That it builds and fosters physical and emotional intimacy between the two of you. Now, why is this all significant? Why should we care that medieval Muslims thought about sex in terms of pleasure? Because if Islamic culture viewed sex through the lens of pleasure and not just procreation, then it makes space for a variety of sexual experience that is not purely procreative. This is the key. If sex is about pleasure and not just procreation, then there is some flexibility there in terms of same-sex relationships. If pleasure is not just about having babies, then what about having sex with people who can't have babies, right? Or women who can't have babies, right? In other words, women aren't defined purely through reproductive rights, that they are sexual beings in their own right, and men are sexual beings in their own right, and that is a God-given status. This also has uh, repercussions even in marriages, right? If sex is predominantly through procreation, then we will find in medieval Islamic society a fixation on virginity and a fixation on keeping a marriage intact no matter what. 
That's not the same in the Islamic world. In the Islamic world, women get divorces. People get divorced and remarried all the time. The early Islamic leaders went through like multiple partners. <laughs> there was no issue there. They're like on their fifth or fourth husband, fifth and fourth wife, and there was no problem there. And same thing, if you, what, in a society that defines sex predominantly on procreative terms and prizes virginity, what happens if you're a widow? Well, widows get married all the time in Islamic societies. That contrary to the sort of contemporary language, I mean, in some ways Muslims have adopted in the modern era the language of evangelicals around virginity. That doesn't exist in a medieval society. In medieval society, sex is great, and a woman who has experience or a man who has experience, great. And if the relationship isn't good, divorce, right? There's no stigma there. Similarly, there's no stigma to, to being a widow or a widower. That you can get remarried, and people got remarried all the time, and formed intimate relationships in a variety of different ways. That's what happens when you start to define sex along the lines of pleasure, and not just purely as procreation. And that is what we will pick up in our future episodes. Anyway, that is all for now. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was fun talking about sex manuals and erotic encyclopedias, but I hope that it shed some light on the way in which classic Islamic societies viewed sex and pleasure. Let me know what your thoughts are. Hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And as always, stay smart, history nerds. (laughs) 